0: This is Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I'm your host, AJ Fraser, and in this series, we do a deep dive into what it means to create a truly transformative educational experience without stepping foot in the classroom. As of the date this episode airs, it's been decided that our university and many and more universities across the country and all over the world Are preparing to deliver their fall semester course offerings entirely online. This wasn't an easy choice, and I'm sure it'll be an even greater challenge as faculty and staff mobilize to create enriching and rewarding learning experiences for current and prospective students in disciplines and topics that have never been offered online, nor had there ever been any intention to offer them online. Nonetheless, it appears this is what we must do under the current guidelines by our provincial and federal health officials to ensure we stem the spread of a dangerous and relentless foe and keep our students, our employees, and our communities safe. It's our task now to adapt, learn, experiment, and share what we find, and maybe, maybe we can collectively create something beautiful and new and accessible to all of our CBU students and attract those that didn't have the means to join us before. In coming episodes, I'll be interviewing with some of the best and brightest around strategies and pedagogical approaches to online teaching and learning, and how we can make the best of the newest technologies available to us to leap ahead as a leader in quality post-secondary education online. In today's episode, I spoke with Rob Power, Assistant Professor of Education in the School of Education and Health. Rob is an instructional designer with a focus on educational technology and online learning. He's been an invaluable resource for not only his department and the education students preparing to move into the digital K-12 classroom, but also the Center for Teaching and Learning and the wider Cape Breton University community. We're so lucky to have him sit down with us to talk about authentic assessment and catering online activities and assignments to your course's learning outcomes. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: I uh, am uh, originally from Newfoundland, and uh, I have been teaching since 2001, did my education degree 2000-2001, so this is the start of my third calendar decade, my 20th year in the game now, and I'm excited to be joining CBU with the Department of Education uh, at this point in my career. I spent a few years teaching in the K-12 sector back in Newfoundland before shifting over to College of the North Atlantic, Qatar, where I spent 10 years living in the Middle East. Great experience with a great bunch of people. I ended up actually – the president of our college over there was one of the faculty members from CBU who taught me one of the courses that I'm actually teaching this term. So kind of a small world with that. I have been working with online learning and and teaching educational technology courses now, probably since 2011 2012. I really started with uh, with this. Uh, that's around when I started working on my doctorate in in distance education, and I started doing some uh, instructional design work at College of the North Atlantic, Qatar. Uh, developing some online courses for them and working with their, their subject matter experts to develop blended learning resources. I've been teaching online courses uh, to education students, graduate and undergraduate students since 2015 when I returned to Canada uh, for a number of different universities, including CBU. Uh, Most of those courses focus on instructional design for online learning and educational technology, educational technology integration, making decisions about technology use, uh, as well as integrating mobile technologies and instructional design for mobile learning.
0: When we discuss authentic assessment in online learning, what are we talking about?
1: What we're really talking about is making not just the learning but uh, the assessment strategies that you use concrete for for your participants in your course. Um, I like to look at it from my perspective uh, where a lot of the courses that I've taught have been heavy on theory but have also had practical elements and I kind of like to marry those two elements together. I don't like to ask my students to to spend their time and to waste their time uh, doing things like writing papers for me. If I'm the only audience, I'm going to be reading it once, grading it, and then moving on from it. Uh, I'd like to get them working on something that's actually going to be practical to them, that's meaningful to them, and that connects to their own context, and and um, that actually helps them to put their learning to use beyond the classroom. So to me, authentic assessment is is doing something that expands beyond the classroom walls and beyond the context of the course. I I like to make it so that the course is as realistic as possible and, and not an artificial construct.
0: Can you give concrete examples of techniques and strategies you've implemented in your courses in an attempt to achieve an authentic assessment, but also to give your students an experience and maybe some tools they can take with them as they progress in their careers?
1: I don't like research papers uh, if I'm the only audience for it. I I just mentioned that a a couple of minutes ago. I like to get my students writing for a broader audience and and for me to act more like an editor for a peer-reviewed journal or for a book or or, or for something like that. So I like to get them to write for their own colleagues, and I'm just one of the audience members for that. That way it – to me, it it sets up this relationship where I'm not assessing them, I'm not judging them. I'm more of a coach and a peer and a colleague who's providing them with some feedback to make their writing as effective as possible for their audience. And I actually went through an example of this just this past term, in the winter term, with one of our graduate level education courses. The course typically has a mini literature review uh, paper that's done at the end of the term. It it sort of leads into the research projects that they end up doing in in the program. But with the the whole COVID-19 scenario happening, I figured it was a great opportunity to introduce some authentic assessment for them and, and to make that literature review activity a little bit more meaningful. So I sort of shifted gears with them and, put uh, the feelers out to see how many students in the course would be interested in actually publishing their papers as an ebook instead of just giving a paper to me and i got them to refocus instead of just writing a literature review on something that was of interest to them in the in the area of educational technology to focus that paper and that review on giving some advice and some strategies and some tools to their own colleagues at their own schools and in their own school districts their own context on how to manage this rapid transition we were all going through to to teaching and learning online. And um, a number of them jumped at it. It made the whole concept of doing a research paper realistic to them and and meaningful to them. They were able to see what the point of doing a literature review was and the point of digging deeper into all the theories of, of using educational technology because now they could see what those theories were telling them about the decisions they were making about technology use. And they were able to actually become uh, the ones who would be viewed as the experts in their field amongst their colleagues. It, 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 they weren't writing it for me. They were writing it for their friends and for their co-workers. And um, I think that they really enjoyed the experience. It was a lot more work for them because they – they saw that they were going to have a wider audience. They weren't writing something just to get a passing grade. They were writing something that would be the best possible writing piece that they could put forward, but the best possible advice that they could give, because they didn't want to be viewed as doing something um, that was sort of half cocked or or, or um, a half measure job. So they put their all into it, and all of the students who submitted chapters for that ebook got A's on the paper as opposed to the typical spread that I see of C pluses to, uh, to A minuses. They all got A's on it because they put a full effort into it. And not only that, they walked away with a chapter with an ISBN number that they could put onto their CV to help them uh, progress their careers. They ended up with something that they could share on social media that got some widespread exposure and that the media has picked up on. And, you know, it was a little bit of an ego boost for them because they got something meaningful out of doing what would have been just another research paper for one of their courses. They walked away with with something useful for themselves and their colleagues. They were able to contribute what they were learning into the course. They were able to take that and turn it into something meaningful for the rest of the world, which really is what – in higher education, we're all about is taking the knowledge that we that we have, the skills that we have, and building on it, constantly building on it, making something new for the rest of the world. Another example uh, from a course that I have taught quite frequently, it's uh, it's a course on actually developing online learning materials and the process that you go through as an instructional designer for online learning. And I get my students to tell me what they want to build, what's something that you could actually use in your own school right now or in your own organization. And they tell me what they want to build. They decide uh, who the audience will be for the resources that they're going to build. So then for the rest of the course, I guide them through the process. As an experienced instructional designer, I walk them through all the steps that they need to go through. I don't give them right or wrong answers. I give them feedback. And their peers give them feedback, too, based on what they're learning when we look at some of the theoretical elements. Their peers look at it and say, hey, you know, this um, this looks like a great idea. I never thought of that. Or, you know what? I think based on what we're reading about cognitive load theory, what you're planning on putting here, what you've got in your storyboard might be a little bit problematic for your students. And then they end up pilot testing their, their uh, courses that they build towards the end of the term. And a lot of them end up taking that material away afterwards, finishing off building the course and using it almost immediately afterwards. I have gotten some feedback from some students who who, uh, have told me that because of what they've learned in uh, in that course and, and the pilot project that they built, they went and implemented it the very next term in their school and their bosses have tagged them as the local experts now and have asked them to help others start building stuff. I have had students over the past few weeks, I've had a number of emails from students uh, from the past two, three years, and a number of comments on social media. People have tagged me and said, you know what, because of this particular course, I don't feel so stressed about making this transition to online learning. I learned so much in that, not from the readings, but just from the process and the confidence that, that I was able to build up and the skills that I was able to build. So for them, that was authentic assessment for them because I was giving them some coaching and some feedback to build some skill sets that stem from the objectives of the course, but that they can actually transfer right away into, into their own context. I've also had uh, some emails from some students who've worked on ebook chapters for a couple of the e-books I've done in a couple of courses who told me, hey, you know – I've had people ask me for the full text of this because they want to add it as a reading in their graduate level course. And and this is so awesome. And, and I've had students who've actually had job offers because they've had their chapter posted on their LinkedIn profile and, and they've gotten job offers from it. So that to me, that's the ultimate reward. To see the students develop some meaningful skills to tie in the concepts that we're looking at in the course, but to doing it in a meaningful way and to to, uh, give back to the rest of the world with the skills that they've built, to me, that is authentic learning and authentic assessment.
0: This episode of Beyond the Class is brought to you by Digital Distinction the newest iteration of the alumni magazine that tunes you in to the stories of inspiration and progress, updates of our greatest and smallest achievements, and a reminder of what it means to be a proud member of the CBU alumni family. Go to cbu.ca slash alumni slash digital dash distinction to read the first edition and make sure to sign up to get the next issue sent to your inbox. Now back to our conversation. Rob, do you find these authentic assessment methodologies only applicable to the final or summative phase, or do you use them throughout the entire course?
1: Yes, typically typically I do. With the exception of the ebook that we did last term, um, I typically do. The reason why I didn't with that ebook uh, last term was because we made a decision with only two weeks left in the course to change direction with that. Uh, I actually made the decision and sent the uh, sent an announcement out to my students on the 16th of March. So right after everything came down, we only had a couple of weeks left and I said, "Hey, this is optional. You can pass in the lit review as you were doing it or you can change direction and uh, let me know if you need any help or any advice while you're doing this." But typically, if I was to do one of those ebook projects with with my students, I would know from the beginning of the course we would do it over 13 weeks. Even that is a very, very very rapid time frame for publishing 20 or 30 chapters if you have that many students. So what I would typically get them to do is go through the same process that I as an academic would go through if I was uh, going to publish a chapter in a book with Springer or with uh, with uh, one of the other publishers. I would submit a proposal. So I ask my students to submit a proposal to me. I give, I give them I post a letter to them saying, "Hey, here's a proposed book, give us a proposal for a chapter." And I take all of that back and I give them some feedback. You know what, this looks like it's on topic for the theme of the book, and here's some things you might wanna consider as you write it, go forth. Then I get them to submit, um, about two thirds of the way through the course, I get them to submit a draft of their chapter to me. And we go through a double blind peer review process, just like you would with a journal or with a book. I give copies of the chapter, uh, anonymized copies of the chapter, to two or three of their classmates. And I randomly select uh, a portion of the students' uh, chapters as well. And I go through them and I give them some feedback. And um, students don't know if they're getting the feedback, the anonymous feedback from one of their classmates or from me, and they get reviewer A, reviewer B, sometimes reviewer C, depending on the number of students in the course. Then for the final version, I tell my students, OK, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get some practical skills here. You've got to take your, your final draft of the chapter and put it into, say, Pressbooks, if that's the platform that we're using. Here's some tutorial videos on how to do that. I'll go through as the editor. I'll do some of the the formatting, uh, t- make, t- tweaking it, make sure everything is consistent. And I do read all of the uh, the final versions of the chapters as well to give them their final grades. But along with that, I ask them to submit to me a checklist. What feedback did you receive after the peer reviews? What did you do about the feedback? What did you do with that feedback? Did you address it? Did you not address it? And if you ignored the feedback, why? Why did you ignore reviewer A's comment or reviewer B's comment? And that's the same process that you would go through with an actual publisher. You have to justify why you're not making a change or why you are making a change. So they go through that whole exact same process that they would if they were going through uh, one of the mainstream publishing houses. And to me, that gives them the opportunity to not only go through their own writing with a fine-tooth comb and to, uh, to try to write as well as they can because they know they're going to have a broad audience, but to get over the fear of getting critical feedback, to be able to look at somebody else's work and give some critical feedback and to get – ideas from other people's writing styles and, and to see their approaches to it and to get exposure to other resources and sources of, of information. Um, but it, it, it gives them that practical skill that they can walk away from as undergrad or graduate students to say, hey, I know how to do a, bl- a double blind peer review process and how to submit to an academic publisher, which is a very powerful skill to have going forth because We don't want our students to graduate and just go out and do their work. We want to get them to be leaders in the community. And part of that is sharing your knowledge with the rest of the world. And and in order to do that, sometimes you have to go through publishers and you have to go through this process and you have to know how to refine your work. So they're developing those soft skills as well as the hard skills of mastering the objectives of the course.
0: For faculty members who are more familiar and comfortable with a traditional lecture-style classroom and the bulk of the grade being determined by a final invigilated examination, do you have any suggestions for their first foray into online teaching and learning?
1: Well, one thing that I would like to suggest is that this type of assessment strategy works a lot better in an online environment than giving an an invigilated exam. A lot of us have wrestled with how am I going to administer exams in a remote teaching scenario? How am I going to make sure that students don't cheat if I give them an exam, even if it's an open book exam? How do I make sure that AJ doesn't go and and get uh, his buddy sitting next to him, terry from from the uh, Center for Teaching and Learning, to write a, uh, you know, to answer these questions for him and then just submit them back to me? well, when you when you make something an authentic assessment, When the problem is something that you uh, want to tackle in your own context, when my students come to me and say, hey, you know what? We need to make a change to this course at our school or we need to do something to reach out to our students who are facing this scenario. Really, what I'm doing is helping you work through that problem as opposed to telling you you have to submit something. So there's less chance that you're going to cheat there's less chance that you're going to cheat because it's something that you want to work on and something that's meaningful to you. And if you were to cheat, well, where are you going to cheat from? Because everybody's project is different. I don't have 30 copies of the same exam coming in. I have 30 different projects being worked on. Um so my advice, if you want to go in that direction with your courses, and I do strongly suggest that you do go in that direction when you're teaching online, is that you look at what is meaningful to assess from your objectives. What, what skills, what knowledge do you want to tease out of your students? And how can they demonstrate that with some kind of project? How can they demonstrate that by tackling some kind of pr- uh, problem? In their own context, as opposed to just giving them a bunch of questions, you're actually going to get at higher order skills when you tackle this sort of thing. But you're going to get a lot more buy-in from your students once you know what uh, what you can do in terms of a problem or a project that they can work on. Work backwards from that. Okay, you know what the final pro- uh, product is that you want your students to pass in. What are the key stages? You're a subject matter expert in this area. If you were working on this problem, what are the key milestones that you need to go through to tackle this? Um, I can't really speak for things like mathematics or engineering or anything like that, but I would imagine that uh, that there's some similar stages where you have a project proposal, where you have drafts of blueprints or or storyboards or or something like that, and where you at the end get to a final. A final product and maybe it gets passed off for a second set of eyes to review and then the final product is submitted so what are those key milestones make those milestones your formative assessments so for me when i have students building a course uh, or building a pilot module for a course in an instructional design course my milestones are that they first they submit just a, a quick little 500 word thing to me where they tell me what what's the project that you're going to work on Who's your target audience and what sources of information do you already have that give you give you background information on your target audience and any uh, considerations you might need to take into account? Uh, Organizational considerations, legal considerations, um, uh, the LMS that you might have to work with, the learning management system, anything like that, that that's. Typically, as an instructional designer, that's information I would gather in the first couple of weeks when I'm doing my needs assessment. So that's their first milestone. The second milestone for me would be to draft up a blueprint or a storyboard. Uh, what uh, just sketch it down on paper or even as an Excel spreadsheet. What is your pro your final product going to look like? The third milestone were, would be where they have a draft of that ready. Uh, to pass off to one of their colleagues and to me to give a second set of expert eyes on before they get live students in there. The final product would be they have a module that's ready for pilot testing, and we get some random students to go in uh, who are actually colleagues from their course, but they haven't seen the course before, and they go in and look at it from a student's perspective. And then we do a, a sort of a debrief. They get some typical student feedback. We use standardized student feedback surveys, and. Uh, I go through with them, okay, what feedback did you get? What does this feedback mean to you now after going through the rest of this course and looking at all the theoretical uh, concepts we've looked at in the course? How are you going to address this feedback before you go and finish building the rest of your course? And how are you going to tweak things based on the student feedback that you got? Um, So that's the use of milestones for that. A few minutes ago, I gave an example – of the uh, the ebook type of projects instead of writing a term paper well what are the milestones for that submitting a proposal to your editor submitting a draft of your chapter doing peer reviews on it uh, and and participating in the peer review process that's another milestone figuring out what you're going to do to address the peer review feedback that's another milestone and then publishing your final chapter that's the final summative evaluation part of uh, part of that. So you work backwards. What are the milestones? That's something that you as an expert can, can determine and uh, how are you going to turn those milestones into formative assessments.
0: What are some of the challenges that can arise when incorporating this type of assessment in your online course?
1: Well, one of the biggest challenges would be time management uh, for you and for your students. It's a huge time commitment for you as an instructor to, uh, to take this kind of approach because uh, there's a lot more coaching and mentoring that's involved. You're going to have a lot more students coming to you with uh, with questions because they're, they're more heavily invested and they want to get things right. Uh, you're going to have a lot more students who are afraid that uh, they're going to make mistakes and you need to reassure them that you know that, that's OK. That's part of the learning process. You don't need to be a perfectionist. Um, you just need to follow the steps, and, and you need to give them the confidence to to go with uh, with their work. Um, so it is a huge time commitment on your part. In some cases, there might be a financial commitment on your part too. I've been using Pressbooks to do a few of those ebook projects, and Pressbooks is not overly expensive but if you want to open it up to the real world you have to pay uh, at least 25 bucks uh, for for an ebook that's going to be published online and open to the world open access uh, could range from 25 bucks to 100 bucks depending on, on what uh, bells and whistles you want with the package. So there could be a, a small financial commitment there but hey, you know we're teachers that's not something that we're not used to. We're used to buying our own materials for our classrooms. so to me that's that's the same thing that's buying materials for an online classroom um, there is a, a bit more of a time commitment on your part though because you know for me if I'm putting one of these ebooks out, my name's going on there as an editor. So, I want to make sure that I'm not putting out junk. And that my students aren't putting out junk. I have to make as much of a commitment as my students do to give them as detailed feedback as possible, and, and to not just skim through things. So, to me, it actually uh, is kind of uh, doing double duty. It's it's creating more investment from my students and more engagement from my students, but more from me as well as their instructor to give them some more meaningful feedback. Uh, So that is definitely something to be aware of. Another thing that you need to be aware of when doing this kind of thing, when you're asking students to put their work out there for the world, not all students are going to be comfortable and confident with doing that. Some students may have uh, some cultural reasons why they may not be open to doing that sort of thing. For the ebook that we did um, last term uh, in response to COVID-19, each of my students was asked to do a video presentation as well. Even if it was just the lit review chapter, they had to do a video presentation summarizing the key points, uh, which, they, which they posted in, in a closed discussion forum to their small circle of peers in the, in the course. But for the chapters, I asked them, if you're going to do a video, instead of just summarizing the key points, just spend a few seconds on that. In your video, provide some practical advice to your colleagues uh, of uh, things that they could actually do that uh, relate to the chapter, and uh, some of your students may not be comfortable with with publishing their faces and their voices and putting themselves out to the world like that, and that is technically beyond the scope of what we're contracted with them to do as part of the course, so you have to be, they have to be okay with that. Because you are putting assess, uh, assessment information, their final chapter or their final paper, you're putting it out there for the rest of the world to see. It's not in a closed loop system. So they need to be okay with that. You need to provide an out for your students. You need to provide an alternative for those who simply are not comfortable with doing it. And you need to make sure that actually publishing in the ebook is optional. So when I spend a whole term doing one of these projects um, and, uh, and we know this right from the beginning, I still make it clear to them that actually publishing it, putting your chapter in press books and putting it out there open access for the rest of the world is optional. It's not optional that you have to go through all the stages, but actually putting it in there for the rest of the world to see is optional. You let me know by virtue of you uploading your chapter to the ebook that you want it published. If you don't want it published, here's the Dropbox in Moodle. You can submit a copy of it with, uh, with a note on the cover page saying not for publication. And I'm fine with that. There's no pressure on my part. Your mark will not suffer for it, but you still go through the rest of the process with the rest of your class. So you need to, you need to be cognizant of that when you're asking students to put themselves out there. Another pitfall that I've encountered when working on practical projects such as selecting technologies to integrate within an organization or uh, building a course uh, or a pilot for a course is the fact that students want to bring real-life problems with them, real projects that they're working on, but they have to be aware of the consequences of doing that. I have a student that I've recently worked with who is a – who's – a freelance instructional designer. So he's got a client he was working with, and he wanted to pilot test some of the some of the resources he was going to build for that client with that course. Well, that client has a non-disclosure agreement with him. So we had to make sure that you know, you could get into a lot of trouble for doing this because, it's okay for me to say, you know what? I'll sign an NDA with you. I'll sign a non disclosure agreement if you want to bounce ideas off me and we'll keep it confidential between us. But what about the 10 or 15 other students in your, in your peer review group? Is it okay to ask them to sign non disclosure agreements? And even if they do, is your client or your organization or your school your college, are they going to be okay with you bringing what may be proprietary materials into our course, building a module around it, and having us, who are not employees of the organization, looking at it? Now, in one way, that's a problem, but in another way, it's actually a very good thing for the type of course that I teach to to run into as a problem, because – It raises awareness of real-world issues that we as instructional designers uh, and as educators come, uh, come into. We deal with copyrighted materials all the time. We deal with the difference between copyright and open access and fair use. So I can actually walk my students through how to handle these practical situations. I was able to walk that student through uh, the process of going back to his client and making sure that the client was okay with it and getting uh, proper clearances to have on file when they put the course up into a learning management system to indicate, uh, you know, here's the authorization to use these materials. Here's the limitations on the use of them. And I was able to walk them through the process of saying, ah, you know what? Shoot. I can't use this now. They've given me these photographs from, from on-site that are the perfect resources to put in into this chapter in the course. How do I get around that? I was able to walk them through the process of creating new materials or finding open access materials and what that entails. These are things now that they're going to keep in mind when building their own courses going forward. They're, it's always going to be nagging in the back of their mind now. Ooh, do I have permission to use this? How do I get around that? So. By having an authentic assessment and facing real-world challenges and stumbling blocks that are not intentionally built into the course, it gives them a much broader range of skills and a much, a much broader mindset uh, about tackling the problems than they otherwise would have.
0: Rob, I just want to thank you so much for being a part of this rapid transition online and then being a, a wealth of knowledge for our faculty and staff as we move to a more intentional online learning experience.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure. Anytime, would love to help out in any way that I can. I'm all about doing everything open access and sharing all uh, anything that I've built and any experience that I have. And I'm all about learning from others and and letting people point out to me, hey, you know, you're out to lunch with that idea. And here's why I'm always open to that sort of thing.
0: If faculty wanted to reach out to you to talk about any of the techniques or tips you talked about in this interview, how would they get a hold of you?
1: Uh, well, there's a couple of different ways. If you're at the university, then I am in the uh, in the distribution list. I'm on the Department of Education site. You can get my contact information there. You can also find out how to reach me through my own website, powerlearningsolutions.com. And all my contact info is on there. My blog is on there where I share a lot of these resources and ideas.
0: Thanks so much again. My pleasure. You've been listening to Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I want to give a very special thanks to Chris Jones and Herbie Sokoloskas for their enduring encouragement and technical support, Terry McDonald for being my unbreakable sounding board, and you, the listener, for taking up the call to be a better and more engaged teacher. With patience, perseverance, and participation in the process, that's right, we can get through this together and build something important don't forget to go to cbca slash alumni slash digital dash distinction to read the first issue of CBU's new alumni magazine. And if you can make a donation to the Perseverance Student Relief Fund at cbu.ca slash donors slash support fund. All the proceeds go to our students in this challenging time. Thank you for listening. and We'll catch you next time.